Welcome to A Better HR Business, the podcast that looks at how HR consultants and HR tech firms grow their businesses and how they help their employers to get the best out of their people. Remember, for show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome back. Nice to have you along with me today. Today, we're going to look at the four big reasons why M&A deals, that's merger and acquisition deals, fail in the recruitment and the HR consultancy sector. And to do so, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Deva Naidu. Deva is the Managing Director of Partners Plus. Deva, thank you very much for joining me today. Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, thanks very much for coming along. Really looking forward to this conversation. Do you want to kick things off by giving us a quick background to yourself? Absolutely. Perhaps before that, Ben, I just it's just dawned upon me that this is the second podcast we've done together uh, in relation to the recruitment and HR sector. Yeah, uh, we did one previously on on joint ventures as well, right? So yep, now I'm yep. in uh, mergers and acquisitions now. So we should try and make this a series, Ben. This is a <laughs> <laughs> it's a takeover. <laughs> no, well, it's a that's, merger that's or an acquisition. Yep. This is definitely a merger, Ben. This is definitely a merger. <laughs> it is not a takeover. Um, but I, I think it's indicative of both of our commitment, uh, yeah. our intrigue, our fascination, and our experience, extensive experience mm-hmm. uh, in, in the sector itself, and, and many different ways we can find to serve our clients and prospective clients with new knowledge and understanding. So I just thought, you know, uh, I just add that as well. Nice. Okay, so what are you saying? You want to want me to give you a quick Yeah, note? who's um, Deva? Well, uh, <laughs> isn't that the big question, Ben? <laughs> but, uh, but let's talk about it within the context of uh, my work life, but especially uh, that in the space of um, recruitment, HR, yeah. uh, and, and the talent ecosystem. Okay, so um, I have been in training and recruitment and then sales and business development um, in Australia, um, in, in the UK and Ireland for many, many years. When I say many years, wow, over 20 years, um, 20, 25 years. So, and alongside that, I've had, you know, sales and business development and sales management roles as well. So it's quite a unique yeah. compendium and bundled uh, skill you find many people within the space of HR, um, well, recruitment, that's a, that's a huge sales component and business development strategy component to it, but many people in the space of HR. Um, and I, I've been an in-house recruiter, I've been a HR manager, I've been a training manager and all of these as well. Uh, don't usually have the commercial side as well. I think that's a kind of a unique position uh, uh, in, in relation to, to what I can offer the market. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, <laughs> There's a joke within the recruitment industry, and you may or may not have heard it. Uh, and I'm talking about agency side, the consultancy side of recruitment, not um, you know the practice side. But where you know we will talk about you know the dark side being agency, and then you know you do your, <laughs> you, know, you do you do your time in the agency side, and then you move into in-house. But I actually did the reverse of that. So I was an in-house recruiter for a retail group in Australia, um, and. Uh, you know, I, I had a training function as well, but really it was about building up the, the the sales team and the management team. And um, so I was in-house initially, uh, but then, you know, I had a, a career, like, as I mentioned before, simultaneously in sales and training before that. But one of the things that exposed me to was there was another um, uh, competitor of ours 
that was going through some a, a dissent uh, within the organization. People weren't happy with the leadership. Uh, they were having some problems with uh, um, their profit and loss as well. Mm-hmm. And there was three managers within this this, this other uh, competitive group that were I found out through my network and just you know just just being someone that served the industry. They were curious about finding new opportunities, and it was a, it was the first time that I'm, I I used a headhunting process when I proactively approached these people. Uh, and sorry, back, back, and then I found out that they were they were curious about moving, and then I managed to get all three of them to join the company that I was working for. Nicely uh, done. Yeah, yeah. Look, it was complicated. It was fascinating, um, and and these three were extraordinary people. And what they did, and you know, then there was an integration piece as well, because you had, you know, like three high-caliber people with a certain way of doing things and integrating them as well, which is also part of the whole M&A piece. But in, in this sense, it was it was headhunting uh, a piece, um, and then uh, you know, uh, I moved to to Ireland uh, and and the UK, and then I along the way realized that I really missed the kind of the very strong sales and commercial and business development. Yeah. Uh, aptitude that I had, and then I moved into the agency side. So there was a huge learning curve uh, in relation to that. And 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 agency side, I I've done many many things from from starting a cold desk, um, from, from continuously recruitment to executive search to managing uh, uh, or helping manage about over hundred headcount, helping uh, you know create over twenty million in in revenue in the space of eighteen months. Nice. Um, you know, again, in in, comp- in conjunction with with, with other uh, uh, players within the organization, I've been an interim director, uh, uh, business development director, and a and strategic advisor for you know uh, uh, recruitment agencies as well. Um, and then from that space, uh, there was a period in time where I was involved in private equity as a country manager for a small private equity boutique. And um, and I was always fascinated by where business development also went. And the next stage was corporate development, right? And private equity, in a sense, is a piece of that. But this wasn't in-house corporate development. It was a PE boutique. Um, and, and since then, I realized the PE model is fascinating. And I'm not suggesting I'm not using the PE model. But I found the M&A uh, model, I think, served the interests of the founders and principals and owners of recruitment industry, recruitment businesses as well as anyone anyone else in the HR consultancy perhaps for my value systems and what, what I understand as strategic intent more effectively yeah. uh, and then so, so then there's just a new piece uh, in it and then the, a lot of the MA deals I've worked on and assignments and mandates I've worked on have worked across a diverse range of sectors uh, but then I realized I did a bit of introspection introspection and reflection I realized that what I really care about is the HR world and the recruitment world um, and now, so I've uh, really am focusing and specializing in that space, recruitment consultancy and, and HR consultancies. Nice. Very good, very good. Can you just uh, clarify PE model and M&A model, just for people who aren't sure of the acronyms? Well, okay, so PE is private equity and um, M&A is mergers and acquisitions. And there's sometimes, there's sometimes there's, a, there's a, a meeting ground of how both the models work, but do you want me to give you a quick rundown of how the PE model works? Because we're going to talk about yeah, everything more extensively. All right. Fundamentally, you have a bunch of investors and there's different types of investors within this group, uh, you know, general partners, limited partners. And what they do is they'll invest in the company. Um, and depending on what their uh, uh, strategic philosophy is like, either the very operational 
um, and they have management control to whatever varying degree, maybe completely, and they'll help scale that business within three to five years, generally speaking, for an exit. Generally speaking, can be up to 10 years as well, depending on what the fund uh, uh, looks like. So the private equity fund looks like. And then what happens is before they invest, many a time there's a conversation about, hey, listen, we need to, to take this 30% growth, 60% growth times 3% growth, whatever may be the case. And therefore in the space of three years with the capital injection and operational capital aptitude that we have and provided for you, um, we will get an earn out, okay? We'll get a carry um, whereupon we will take recoup our monies as well as a huge amount above that, okay? Sure. Now, and, and I'm making a general statement here because there's some great PE firms out there and some of my colleagues and we use a PE model and, uh, I still think it's a fascinating way of, of, of scaling a business, uh, but many a time, um, it because of the short-term nature of that, that timeline, I wonder whether a lot of shortcuts are, are taken in order to drive revenue up and scale up, and then sometimes end clients suffer because of it. I mean, I mean, I know that does happen, but I'm not suggesting it always happens. Yeah, so yeah. I like the M&A model. Uh, I think it serves my clients more effectively. Um, but that's just my my personal opinion, really. Yeah. And so for the purposes of today's discussion, uh, we're looking at the four big reasons why M&A, M&A mm, deals yeah. fail in the recruitment sector, particularly, but the HR right. broader. And I should point out to listeners that this is not around the HR components, you know, merging two different cultures and things like that. That's not what we're talking about today, even though that's a massive topic in itself. What we're actually looking at is the, the business component of an M&A deal. And we've got four big reasons. So perhaps, David, you want to start us off? I know the first one is it's a really critical issue and that's not having alignment at the board level. Can you talk us through that? So if you're looking at deal values, or let's say 20 million and less, depending on the structure of the company, right? So, so in the sense of the company has 20 million in revenue, and then you can look at what the, the buy or sell side looks like, right? And, and I advise both buy and sell side. Uh, in in Ireland, in the UK, and the Asia Pacific region, right? So I have deal teams in all those regions yep. uh, because of my background, and and I think it's fascinating what's going to happen in Asia Pac and how Europe can be part of that and UK can be part Absolutely, of that. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So um, it, it's many a time at the level that I play because I work with entrepreneurs and SMEs, right? I, I don't work at the the, the mega corporate. A level, and I don't know if I ever want to either. Um, nothing against yep. it. I've worked for some of the major brands in, in the recruitment sector, uh, multinationals, uh, because I. But I just love entrepreneurship, and and uh, and I think it, uh, that's where my my skill set and my passion lies. And, yep. But at that level, you know, you can look at the the, the 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 capital deployment model, and you can look at the fiscal model, which we'll touch upon later on as well. But really, it's about the psychology of it. It's about the values of it. It's what the what the people drivers, if I can use that term, what that's all about, right? So when I speak of no alignment at board level, or maybe there's two or three directors, or one owner, two owners, three owners, whatever may be the case, or even a single owner, there's no alignment, there's no conviction, there's no certainty about why they want to do it. Now, there's a discovery piece, because I'm kind of curious, understandable. Why wouldn't you be curious, right? But without that internal alignment in the individual or an alignment and a strategic, clear strategic intent for why you want to do this, which would, of course, entail a clear understanding of what the search looks like for a buyer or a seller, 
right? Without that shared understanding, without that concerted agreement, I dare say there won't be a perseverance to entail that the deal is finalized. Now, that's going to be complicated anyway, because you may not find the right buyer or seller. So without that, that psychology, the value-driven aspect, values-driven aspect uh, uh, at that level, whether it's an individual or a group of individuals, uh, without that, I tend to find it fails. And I can recognize it from the very start. And I, I, I tend to ask at this stage nowadays, listen, all of you have a chat. If you want me to drop in on a call as well, great. But maybe I don't think that's going to be helpful. Uh, or it may be helpful, but let's put out a, let's create a single pager or two pager. It doesn't have to be a huge document, but why you want to do this and and what um, the, the the buyer the acquisition uh, uh, option looks like, or what the the, the buyer op- uh, option looks like as well. So mm-hmm. at the level that I play, in, it's about the people. It's about the yeah. psychology of the pe- the people or, or the person or the people's involved. Um, so you know there's. There's not much science behind it. Well, except the science of psychology, you know. So, so, uh, uh, so, so that's that's you know it's really really critical. Without that, and then it's a technical aspect of it. Is you know if, they, if there's an understanding of what everyone's aiming to achieve, then it's easier to to, to continue with the mandate anyway. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. What about the second one, which is uh, bringing in professional advisors too late into the game? Yeah. So one of the, one of the things. Um, that can be very frustrating for everyone. Uh, so one of the things, um, and by the way, everything I'm sharing with you now comes from uh, just this year, some of the con- concerns I've had with, with deals and why they failed, right? So these are real life cases. I won't mention names, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, one of the things I suggest from the very start is get your deal team organized from the very start. You know, you may have your accountant, but this may not be a deal accountant. You know, there's different type of skill sets that accountants can have. Majority of accountants that work in-house or our practice are kind of very risk adverse. Uh, but a deal accountant can still be very, will manage risk, but she he will understand that this is about closing a deal, right? So get your, so you may need a separate accountant, okay? Get a legal contractual person as well, a commercial contractual, corporate uh, finance contractual person in place as well. Uh, this can be costly. Um but perhaps you could even put them on contingency. Uh, but but it can be costly. But it's going to be more costly if you spend X amount of pounds and euros, and then later on, and dollars, and then later on, the deal falls apart because you're dropping your advisors because you realize you don't understand something or this doesn't sit right. You don't think this is correct, and then you get in the expertise, and and then there's a huge disruption. And generally speaking, it tends to fall. This is fascinating, right? It tends to happen both. Uh, uh, Issue number one, no alignment at board level or no alignment at owner level. And issue number two, it all, generally speaking, from my understanding, it falls around three quarters through the the the, the deal. It's three, three quarters through the negotiation. Generally speaking, those two issues tend to happen when people turn around and say, oh, my God, I don't understand what this means. Let me bring in a, a, a lawyer. I don't understand what this means. Let me bring in an accountant that understands. And this accountant, of course, will have to disrupt. This lawyer has to disrupt because that's how they justify uh, uh, their, their their presence. And many a time they're doing the right thing. You know, they think this is the correct thing. But all the groundwork is then just yeah. dismantled. Uh, so get your deal team from the very start. You need it anyway. I mean, regardless of how uh, wise or capable you are, experience you've got, you know, uh, people who've done more than one M&A will bring in a deal team because they realize the value of it. From the start, they go, okay, I know I can do this, but how about 
a whole bunch of other people in the room, a whole yeah. bunch of other people scouring through through the documents oh, yeah. um, to, to help the process. It's like it's like building a house and bringing in a, an architect halfway through, and then they just they want to redesign yes. things because well, yes. we got to that's their job, and they want to have yeah. an input into the project. Yes. Otherwise, they wouldn't be invi- invited back for something else. So yeah, that, that's that, correct. That's correct. A frustrating process if it's not done right. So number three, then, not being flexible in relation to how capital is used, and that's both for the seller and for the buyer. What, what yeah. is that all about? Okay, so, um, and in a sense, this serves, it serves the end client, the, the, the clients that I represent, okay? So uh, at a very great level, from an investment perspective, from as, as an M&A advisor, um, I think there's, an understanding or lack of understanding. I say this with the deepest level of respect because there's only so much we know, um, and and you know, it's, there's only so much we can learn within the, within a certain framework, but and, and time frame. But many a time, for instance, if you look at it, like for instance, like, here's a good example. What's known as a leverage buyout model, right? An LBO model, uh, and one version of an LBO model is when you when a buyer uh, will use the assets. Of the company that they're going to acquire to help raise funds, right? Yep. Many a time, the seller doesn't realize that this is a potent way of doing things because it's tax efficiency. Uh, all that really matters if you think your company is worth three million pounds, that the buyer pays you three million pounds. Now, then you turn around and say, "By when?" Right? So many a time, like when there's asset-based lending or commercial. Uh, finance, you know, uh, uh, and, and there's, you know, to varying degrees, it's even invoice financing and all the rest. So kind of innovative capital models uh, that are very, very tried and tested. They themselves have an industry of its own that's very legitimate and stable and have done great things uh, globally f- for diverse range of in, uh, uh, sectors. But many times a buyer or seller don't realize that, oh my God, I can use asset-based lending to raise finance. So, so my, my, my debt uh, 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 liabilities are lesser than I, I would expect, as opposed to going out and getting a commercial loan, you know, getting, going down that model where the rates can be higher and then acquiring a business, right? So you're so, saying it's it's more than just, here's my price, give me some money for it or get get finance for it and give me the money for it. You're, you're saying there are more options available. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, so here's the thing, you know, so if you truly, and this is when I go back to point number one, if you truly want to buy, right, find the different options available to you, right? If you truly want to sell, understand how the buyer feels as well. And then the buyer has to understand how the seller feels as well, right? So the, one of the best things any of us can do when we walk away from a deal, when it's closed, um, I'm talking about in particular when the deal has been won, that both parties go, all right, that was great. We can do this again. Because word of mouth, whatever is the scenario, I mean, you can talk about the ethical aspects of it, but also from a commercial, which I think is critical, but you talk about the commercial aspects of it, you know, you walk away from it going, they didn't take all the money away from me, you know, or I didn't take all the money away from them. I didn't squeeze them completely. Uh, we're talking about SMEs here. You know, we're talking about people who, who want to have a legacy or they want to continue a legacy or they want to scale. There's ambitions, there's people's livelihoods, their staff, uh, livelihoods are involved, there's communities that they serve, there's family that they serve. So, you know, so if you understand this variables at play, it's not like saying my company's worth three, three million um, in revenue. EBITDA is five times of 250. So I want seven, you know, you know, I want a, a figure of 750 grand. You pay me now. Yeah. You know, 
um, what all seven hundred fifty? No one does that. Very rarely. Even the even the corporates, if you look at the the big big tech deals, right? Cash up front, cash only deals very rarely happen. Really, a share, yeah, they very rarely happen. So you know, at the smaller level, in a sense, we're blueprinting what the larger deals are like. You know, it's very rare that cash up front deal happens. It's like, all right, here's a nominal amount, here's an earnout amount. You know, over a period of time, we pay you so much, but you have to deliver so much. Uh, here's some shareholding, some shares. So there's a new, let's say, it's a merger, right? So your business, we merge with my business, but so now there's a sense of scale. I'm giving you. 12% of shares of that, that's part of the payout. You can cash out over a particular period of time when it matures or keep it. You know, so there's different ways of getting paid for that 750 grand you think your business is worth. And the three million, you, know, you know, whatever the nominal figure is, Ben. Why would, a, why would a seller look at a different option rather than just straight up cash? Because they want to sell. Uh, because, because you open up the opportunity for other buyers to buy your business, right? So, uh, that's why I go back to point number one. Do you really want to sell? What do you want to sell for? How do you want to sell it? Right? So if a, if someone turns around and say, listen, I want to buy you. So let's say it's a, an exit because they want to move to a different business, right? A lot of entrepreneurs find something else that's exciting, okay? Uh, or maybe it's a retiree. Right? It's time to retire, okay? Uh, or, you know, whatever may be the case. There's a whole bunch of different motivations of why people want to exit, right? So, okay, I want to leave. And the buyer goes, listen, we're going to maintain your legacy. We won't uh, uh, let go of any of your staff. We look after your clients, your community still, you know, let's say it's a small village in a certain part of the UK. Your, your community can turn around and still say, oh, my God, that's still trading as that name. There's a legacy there. The staff are still there. They're still serving the community. They're still doing a great job. And many a time, Someone who turns around and say, listen, let's use this, this kind of innovative capital deployment models to acquire your business. They don't have the full cash fund. And if they do, they're going to make some very harsh decisions in order to fulfill the debt obligation from a commercial loan. And then the business suffers. Yeah. See the roll-on effect. See the roll-on effect. Yeah. So, so, so that, that's that as well. So, I mean, that's when sometimes when it becomes, when those extra hard commercial decisions have to be made there's huge negative repercussions as well um so 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 bad that in mind so the buyer i think needs to be equipped with this understanding because then suddenly people you know you know a lot of your audience a lot of people that i talk to may try and say oh my god i can acquire in a different region but i, I thought i had to get a commercial loan okay. but wait a minute i have different options available to me now and then the seller's going I can't keep waiting for someone to come up with a 750 grand or whatever the normal figure is, the 3 million, the 4, the 5 million to buy my business. This other person's giving me an option here, right? And either way, there's risk involved. Any way you look at it, when there's a merger and acquisition, whether it's through a pure cash upfront, which very rarely happens, uh, okay, or the different ca capital infrastructure models available. Uh, full cash fund upfront is what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Um, there's always risk involved. So there's always risk in running a business. You know, someone, someone asked me just recently, but Dave, oh my God, if I'm going to acquire another company, what's it going to be like? How do I manage that? I go, you've got an enterprise customer that takes up 40% of your workday. How frustrating is that? But now you've got another business. You can do it. Do you, do you know what I mean? So like sometimes people have a corporate client, enterprise customer, and a huge amount of their resources are, are deployed to look after this customer. Absolutely. And then huge amount of the resources deployed to win and acquire this customer over a period of time, maybe a year, two or three years, right? 
the recruitment industry in particular takes a long time to build rapport and understanding before you're given an, a, a, an opportunity, especially in contingency or even a search level or the huge RPO deals, you know, the huge talent organization, HR, uh, managed services, uh, 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 you know, projects as well. It takes a while to, to, to understand and, and acquire the business. I sometimes say use that kind of uh, uh, timeline and understanding like to acquire a business, it may take a year, it may take two years, it may take three years, it may take six months, it may take three months, it really depends. But you are capable of managing this large separate entity. But now your organization has just been scaled. Your shares in a sense has just been scaled. You can attain new markets. You can uh, uh, provide new services. You can delight your customers and your clients with, with, with new offerings. Um, you, you may be more stable because instability, I think a lot of my clients are talking about it as being, being a major concern yeah, at definitely. the moment. Um, so, I mean, I, I know I'm heading off on a different tangent, but it's all part of that, that, that kind of uh, piece. So, so yeah, be, be aware that, be open to being flexible about how uh, a capital is deployed. Now, if they don't come up with a figure that you want, you walk away anyway, because that's just, that's just what people do. It's know? a decision, yep. Yeah, yeah. So that's that. Okay. And what about the fourth one then, the final one, not outsourcing the function? Here's the difference between an acquisition and acquiring a new client, right? You're acquiring a new partner or you're acquiring a new business. And with it, there's a whole range of complexity, which also includes sometimes the implementation piece, which we probably may or may not have time to talk about today. But that's a separate topic. Maybe that's the third podcast we can do, Ben. But um, <laughs> the outsourcing function piece, you know, do your due diligence. Find out who's a good M&A advisor, right? Buy side and sell side. Some people specialize. I do both. Find out who's a great investor in the space. And they may not always have to come in from from the recruitment space. I've worked in other industries, so I bring in the other ideas, and I study constantly. Here's the thing. You may get strategic investment from the industry or separate from the industry, or maybe from some of the funds that's out there, that's government or non-government, uh, or some of the corporate finance, and then use their funds. So here's a different innovative capital model, right? Not a commercial loan from a bank, let's say, or investment bank, and use their funds to acquire a business, right? Sometimes, of course, what that entails is they'll provide operational expertise as well, but it's separate from private equity. But there's other ways you can find experts, do the due diligence to find an expert and outsource the function to a large degree, but constantly monitor it and make sure that it uh, has the milestones in place and adhering yeah. to the value systems and the strategic intent. Goes back to point number one, what's, the, what's your clarity of intent? What exactly do you want? Why are you doing it as well? But outsourcing the function, I think, helps because it's very, very complicated and arduous and technical and takes up a huge amount of time and you have to run your business. Yeah. And you have to run your business. So focus on what your main strengths and your main aptitude are as well. From my perspective, with the HR consultant boot camp and for client projects right. that we do, constantly saying, well, can we narrow your focus and find your ideal clients and, and get really, really good at that area so that they just absolutely love you and, and everyone in that sub-industry or sub-niche, if you like, they see you as the experts. That to me is applicable in the M&A field because you don't just want an accountant doing it for you or yourself. If you've got no background in M&A, find someone who's got uh, expertise. So, The recruitment sector in particular, for instance, right, have been doing M&A and creating roll-ups and creating groups for the longest time. So I dare say any of the recruitment CEOs that in, in your audience and in your group that you communicate with know about it, may have already worked upon it successfully or unsuccessfully uh, or worked within the business that, that has gone through the process. It's something that the recruitment sector, especially in the HR domain and the talent domain, does exceptionally well. So they see the value of it. So it's proven ground. It's tested ground. 
But yeah, go and ask advice from someone who knows how to do it. Yeah. So we've covered the four big reasons why M&A deals fail in the recruitment and HR consultancy sector. David, what should people do next? I know we've got a page here on the website. So if you're listening to this on the go, it's getmorehrclients.com forward slash MA. So getmorehrclients.com forward slash MA. And what's on that page there, David? Why should people check that out? To book a call. Simple as that, okay. Yeah, yeah. My calendar link is there. It's a discovery call, completely discreet, no sense of obligation. Let's have a conversation. Perfect. All right, David, well, we've covered some great ground there. And if you're considering either buying, selling, merging, acquiring another business, definitely get in touch and have a conversation, get some ideas and advice off David. David, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed the chat. Uh, ben, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, folks. Um, hope to talk to some of you very soon. Thanks for joining us today on A Better HR Business, the podcast that explores the world of HR consulting and HR tech businesses. For show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Remember to subscribe and share the show with any friends who are busy growing a HR business. Thanks and see you next time.